Hello everyone, welcome to episode 26 of Infraction. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. Uh, So for today's episode, we are back in the US in Charlottesville this time, and we'll be discussing the murder of 22-year-old Yardley Love. Yardley Love was born on the 17th of July 1987 in Baltimore, Maryland, to parents Sharon and John Love. All throughout school, Yardley played lacrosse and became really, really good at it, and by the time she turned 18, she was an all-county lacrosse player. George Hughley was exactly two months younger than Yardley and was born to his parents, Marta and George. Um, His father was actually called George IV, making George at the centre of this story, George Hughley V. I'm sure it comes as no shock or surprise to you, given his grand name, that his parents were incredibly wealthy Washington socialites and they were super duper rich. George and Yardley met in 2007 in their freshman year at the University of Virginia, and they started dating in November of the same year. Both Yardley and George played lacrosse to a high standard, and both were on the university's respective female and male lacrosse teams. Although it seems that both Yardley and George worked hard at their sports and their degrees, George also had a keen focus on drinking and frat parties. Just a couple of weeks into their relationship, George was found by the police to be underage and in the possession of alcohol at his family's holiday home in Florida, and he was arrested. A year later, he was arrested again for public drunkenness and for resisting arrest. He reportedly started threatening a female officer, and another officer had to tase him to subdue him outside his frat house. For this, George received a suspended sentence of 60 days and a six-month probation. He was also fined ordered to perform community service, and he also had to undergo a drug rehabilitation programme. At the start of the couple's relationship, aside from George's brush-up with the law, everything was seemingly going very well between Yardley and George. Teammates often hung out with the new couple and they seemed happy. But unfortunately, George had a serious anger management issue that was made much worse when alcohol was added. His violent and jealous tendencies resulted in the couple having a very on-and-off relationship as George would spark fights almost every time he drank. Just over a year into their relationship, George heard that Yardley had kissed another member of his lacrosse team. It's unclear if this kiss happened whilst the couple were in their on or off phase, and to be honest, it's unclear if the rumours were even correct. But either way, George, fuelled with alcohol, attacked the teammate in his sleep and injured his eye. Their lacrosse team coach heard about this attack, However, the incident was pushed aside and George faced no repercussions for his violent actions. Unfortunately for Yardley, this was not a one-off act of violence and George's aggression progressed. Soon she found herself to be the target of his rage. In February 2010, about a year after the incident where George attacked his teammate, both the male and female lacrosse teams were attending a party at George's frat house. During the night... Mike Burns, another teammate of George's, entered one of the bedrooms and found George strangling Yardley on the bed. He described the scene as George having Yardley in a chokehold. Mike reported that when he entered the room, George released the chokehold and left. Friends of Yardley say that she was incredibly shaken by this incident and became fearful of George. So about two months after this physical attack on Yardley, she heard rumours that George was seeing one of her sorority sisters. I have to stress that it's unclear if George was cheating on Yardley at this point or if the couple had broken up or what was really going on with their relationship. But either way, Yardley was very upset about this rumour. Therefore, she went to his place and confronted him. When she got to his, she found two other girls in his apartment. She became upset and reportedly threw her purse at him. Three days later, she received an email from George in which he said, quote, I should have killed you. 
Yardley, understandably distressed by this threat, showed the email to several of her friends. A couple of weeks later, George attended a father and son golf tournament with the rest of his lacrosse team, an event at which he got completely and utterly blind drunk at. Witnesses say that he was barely coherent and that he was stumbling around everywhere at the event. That night, on May 2nd, just before midnight, he went to Yardley's apartment and banged on her door and told her that he wanted to talk. He broke down the door to her apartment and entered. (gasps) Much later that night, he went back to his apartment and when his friend asked him where he'd been, he lied to him and said he was just out. He didn't mention once that he'd been at Yardley's apartment or that he'd seen her. On May 3rd, 2010, just several hours after George had broken down Yardley's door, the police were called to that very same apartment. They arrived at her apartment just before 2.30 in the morning, and there they found Yardley Love's battered, lifeless body. Almost instantly, George was found by the police and taken into custody for questioning. So there is a video of his entire hour-long interrogation, and I watched the entire thing to save you all from having to do it. It is remarkably painful. He cannot say a single sentence without using the word like, and um, one of the comments on the video says something along the lines of, if you edited out every time he said the word like, this hour-long interrogation would only last eight minutes. And it is so, so true. So it's really, really painful to watch, but I will kind of go into what he says. So in the interrogation video, um, it starts just before 8am and you can see that George looks and sounds incredibly drunk still. So this really is, this is happening kind of uh, six hours um, after Yardley's body has been found. So about eight hours after he initially went to her apartment and broke down the door and things like that. So he's still very drunk at this point during the interrogation. Um, They start by just asking him what happened the day before. He said he went to golf went to the bar for a while, he went out to eat at 7.30 at night, he went home, he drank a few beers, went to another bar, and then he said he went to talk to Yardley. When asked who's Yardley, he called her his former girlfriend, so I guess we can presume that they have actually broken up at this point. He said he was trying to talk to her and that she was freaked out because of something that she had done a few days ago, and at this point he references the incident where she came round to, um, to his to confront him about seeing that girl. He said he was talking to her and she was getting aggressive. He said he started to shake her a bit and she got scared and she started hitting her own head against the wall. He said she freaked out from just even seeing him at hers. He said, quote, I never hit her. I never hit her in the face. She was floppy like a fish out of water. She was hitting her head against the wall. And then in the interrogation, he mimics this by knocking his own head against the wall. He monologues for a really long time, like nine minutes or so, and he goes on and on and he just keeps going on about Yardley hitting her own head, him shaking her, him just trying to talk to her. He said that he grabbed her arms and, quote, during the commotion, I may have grabbed her neck, um, but he says that he never strangled her. Yeah, so I was just going to ask, in terms of the definite injuries we know she had at this point, I mean, obviously Mm -hmm. he keeps referencing the fact that she's hitting her head against a wall. So presumably that's him trying to cover up some kind of facial injuries. And then now you've just mentioned strangulation, etc. Like, do you have Mm. any more information on what specifically um, her cause of death was or anything, just so we can understand the context of his interview a bit better? Yeah, so it's quite difficult because at this point, even the police don't know, like, Yardley's cause of death. So 
at the beginning of the interrogation, the female officer says to George uh, something along the lines of, you're not under arrest. Um, we're here to talk about what you did last night. She's very vague about it. She's kind of very, she leaves it very open. Um, and he says that he thinks that it's to do with an assault. And um, it's either at the beginning of the interview or maybe like slightly, maybe like nine, 10 minutes into the interview. The, um, oh yeah, I think it's later. Actually, I do kind of reference it. Um we find out that she's got a black eye. Um, but that basically at this point, um, he thinks that he's just there to talk about an assault and the officers haven't revealed anything else and they don't actually know how she died. They just know that she's deceased at this point. Right, okay. So she's, yeah, we should just assume that she's been quite clearly, yeah, beaten and has died, but he doesn't necessarily know that at this point. Yeah, it's exactly that. So we know that... Um, yeah, she's deceased. Her body was bruised and battered. Uh, she was lying in a pool of her own blood. Um, they don't know the cause of death. George, at this point, supposedly doesn't know that she's dead either. And we kind of go into that a little bit later. But yeah, right now, I'm not like actively keeping information from you. At this point in the interrogation, there's really nothing um, kind of in reference to Yardley at all. He's just going on and on and on about what he thinks he's there for, which is that he thinks he's there for an assault charge. Even though he's told at the beginning of the interview that he's not under arrest for anything, he's he's told that they don't have an arrest warrant for him. Yeah, because I was actually surprised at how open he was being. I was thinking like, well off socialite, he might have wanted to get a lawyer. But yeah, I suppose if he thinks he's just there, not under arrest, possible assault, then it kind of explains why, plus the alcohol, why he's being so upfront about everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So at this point in the interrogation, the female officer asks when he left Yardley's, did he take anything? And George says no. Um, And then the officer says, well, Yardley's computer's gone. And then George admits, okay, I took her laptop. When asked what happened when he left Yardley's, he said that when he left, Yardley was bleeding from her nose, but that he didn't try to call anyone as he didn't think that she was in need of going to the emergency room or any medical attention. At this point in the interrogation, we're about 25 minutes in, um, the detective says that she wants to know if he hit her with anything. It's at this point that the detective says, I'm trying to figure out why Yardley has a black eye and why she has a big lump on her head. As she uses that phrase, she says why she has a big lump, why she has a black eye. Um, Because kind of like just I mentioned to Sal just then, at this point, nobody has mentioned that Yardley is dead. When the detective asks George how he has all the bruises on his arms and on his hands, he says that all his bruising is from lacrosse. He says, quote, 100% these are all from lacrosse. He points to a bruise on his arm and he says, 100% I got whacked here. He's questioned on the incident where he reportedly choked Yardley on the bed and he said that he couldn't remember it because he'd been very drunk, but he says that he think he lay on top of her and held her tightly to, quote, detain her. He then at this point gets quite aggressive and he says, I know I'm in here on assault charges. It's at this point that the officer says, no, I told you at the start, we have no arrest warrant out there for you. We're just talking to you. So there's a lot more back and forth, um, a lot more of George going on and on and on about various different things that are kind of irrelevant. Um, But after about 45 minutes or so into the interrogation, the female detective eventually says, well, I have something to tell you. She's dead. You killed her, George. At this point, George stares at her for maybe 20 seconds, and then he says, she's dead. The officer replied with, I think you knew that already. And he said, no, I did not. How the fuck is she dead? And the officer says, because you killed her. Again, he says, how the fuck is she dead? And once again, the officer replies, because you killed her. He then puts his head in his hands and said, oh my God. 
He goes on with this whole, how is she dead stuff for a while. He says he didn't hit her. He doesn't know how she's dead. Uh, the second detective who's in the room then says, that's why you took her computer, wasn't it? Because you knew that there was an email on there where you told her that you should have killed her. At this point, George is quite erratic and maybe you would describe it as slightly hysterical and he demands to see Yardley and says again that he doesn't believe that she's dead. He keeps repeating, she's not dead, she's not dead, I don't believe you. This part of the interrogation is very erratic actually because he keeps repeating that he doesn't believe it and that he didn't hurt her. The second detective in the room is firing question after question at him, asking him, um, things like, did you hit her on the head? Did you hit her against the wall? Did you smother her? He's firing these questions like very fastly at him. And then the first female detective who's quite stern and she's very authoritative and she turned to him and she said, listen to me, George, she is dead. So all these three things are going on at the same time. So it's a lot of talking. It's quite a lot of like emotion in the room. So I suppose at this point, they're just trying to get him to crack and just confess exactly what happened the night before. Yeah, I think it's exactly that. I definitely think it's exactly that. So yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, and at this point, we're about 50 minutes or so into the interrogation. So at this point, I think they feel like they have enough to um, arrest him. And so they handcuff him as part of their arrest protocol. And they told him that he was under arrest. but They didn't yet know what his charge would be as they were yet to determine how Yardley had died. The only other thing really to mention on the interrogation is that they question him quite a lot on what Yardley was wearing. Um, they don't reveal why they keep asking this. I can only assume it's because maybe she was found nude or something like that. They ask him if he sexually assaulted her and, you know, things like that. But they never reveal why they keep pushing with that line of questioning. And um, he maintains that she was in bed when he entered her room and so that she was just wearing T-shirt and pants. Um, but that's kind of the extent and sort of the, the take-home information from the whole hour interrogation there. Okay, so reports from the medical examiner uh, came in and they revealed that Yardley's injuries were incredibly severe. The report revealed that her right eye had been bashed into her skull and that her brain was severely bruised. The coroner confirmed that she had died from blunt force trauma. Despite this evidence, George's attorney maintained that Yardley had banged her head during the altercation with George and that his client had not beaten Yardley to death. So that just really surprises me because I can imagine that George in his drunken state might claim that Yardley had got all of these injuries from banging her head against a wall. But really his attorney thinks that the best course of action is to stick with that story when, sorry, I just don't believe that it would be very likely that any human can hit their own head against a wall that hard. Like, I just think self-preservation would kick in beyond the point that you would completely cave your eye socket in doing it. Do you know what I mean? It just doesn't sound like something a lawyer would come up with, even if, granted, their client might have already said it. I, like, I understand they want to stick to a story, but just seems shocking to me from a lawyer to come up with such a flimsy explanation of such horrific injuries. Yeah, without a doubt. I think it's... a yeah, it's a very poor defense. Um, you are right, though. It probably is because they're just trying to in keep with what George said throughout his entire interrogation. But yeah, I don't know. I totally agree with you. I don't think it was it's possible to bang your own head so hard that you would bash your eye socket in and, and that you, you know, would do such bad damage that you would bruise your, your brain. I just think exactly like you said something would kick in and it would stop you from doing it and also just like why would you do it like his explanation for why she was hitting her head against the wall was this whole like she was acting like a fish out of water she was scared um she was just like freaking out that kind of explanation but just in general like I just don't I don't see how there's any kind of 
how there could be any kind of truth to that either. Um, but yeah, I imagine that what his lawyers are trying to do is just make his defense fit in with his interrogation because they know that this interrogation video is going to be played at the trial. But yeah, it's a weak argument. It's terrible. Yeah, I agree because as you just touched on there, um, the way George describes it is very much like he's just a bystander in all of this. Like she was hitting her head because she was a fish out of water and she was distressed or whatever. But regardless of what he had to do with it, he was in the room and he makes no reference particularly to him attempting to stop her doing this. And if someone as a human was in that severe distress that they would do that to themselves, then clearly George was doing something at that point that was terrifying her or really distressing her. And it doesn't sound like he tried to stop her. So I'm already thinking... Uh, personally I think he probably hit her but even let's say he didn't I still think he's culpable in some way here yeah without a doubt without a doubt and he's explicitly asked you know um he says in his interrogation when I left her nose was bleeding and the the um, the detective says well why didn't you you know call a medic why didn't you get her some help and he just says well I don't think that she needed I didn't think that she needed to go to the emergency room but then your story is that she's banging her own head so hard against the against the wall that she's you know what supposedly given herself a nosebleed and you think that she doesn't need any help I totally agree with you it's just barbaric he's just he's just lying through his teeth at this point it's just awful um yeah I completely agree with you I just think it's it's barbaric and it's ridiculous and his he's not helping himself because he's outright admitted that he didn't want to get her help and that he didn't try to get her help and that he just went home um so yeah it's just bizarre it's bullshit <laughs> It is bullshit. Um, so obviously the police thought this too. And later that day, George was charged with first degree murder. Ooh, first degree. Yes, first degree. So this is where things get a little bit strange. Several days later, with absolutely no explanation whatsoever, the Charlottesville Circuit Court sealed George Hughley's case records. It's unclear why this happened, but the little voice inside my head says that it's because he had a rich socialite daddy who called in a favour or paid someone off to protect him. Absolutely, it's because he's a rich, white, successful sports person and a young college team. Yeah, exactly. Um, Very Brock Turner. So... The police then started questioning people at the University of Virginia um, to get information about George's violent past, and that is when all of this information about his violent past started to surface. During this questioning at the uni, the university did confirm to the police that George had attacked another lacrosse teammate in his sleep, and that, of course, is the incident we heard earlier. Within a few weeks, the media became ferocious and demanded to have the case records unsealed so that they could report on this case. At this point, all the public really knew was that Yardley had died and that George had been arrested. His previous arrest and his past violent behaviour towards his teammate and towards Yardley were not yet in the public domain because of his case records being sealed. Because of the media's persistence, the judge began a series of hearings to ascertain whether George's case should be unsealed and what information should be released with regards to public interest. Finally, after three months, documents relating to his case were unsealed and it was only then that the tumultuous relationship between Yardley and George was revealed. In December 2010, the defence attorneys for George requested a hearing before the judge to request that they have access to Yardley Love's medical records so that they could prove that her death was not the result of a deliberate or intentional attack. The judge refused this request and her medical records remained sealed. Two weeks after this, additional charges were filed against George. These charges were for felony murder, 
robbery of Yardley's residence, statutory burglary, entering a house with the intent to commit a felony, and grand larceny. These latter charges were brought after George admitted to intentionally taking Yardley's Apple computer with the intent to later destroy it. Remind me again, what's grand larceny? Um, excellent question. It's it's kind of like it's theft really but theft of a high value so it's like each jurisdiction um will have like a certain monetary value that they put on um what the upper tier would be for grand larceny so basically it's because it is because he stole her apple computer and that had like a certain high value to it right okay it's just weird that that's two they still charge with theft and larceny so they charged him with burglary. So I don't know how it is in Virginia, but in the UK, for example, burglary is like a different crime to theft. Like you have uh, burglary is when you enter someone else's property with the intention to steal, um, whereas theft is actively taking um, someone's property with the intention to permanently deprive them of it or something. Um, this is like five years ago, law school. So, <laughs> But yeah, so they are actually different crimes. So they're basically throwing the entire uh, statute book at him right now and they're just trying to bring every charge they can against him. Cool. <laughs> okay, so I should actually mention that during this time um, that all this was going on, so it's been like a few months now, but I think it's been about seven months since Yardley's death. So George was being held this entire time at the Charlottesville Regional Jail and he was held without bail. Um I presume because they knew that his parents probably could pay whatever bail they set. So, um, and that's like a good thing in my opinion. So about four months after this, in April 2011, the judge set the trial date to be the following year of 2012. And he set the trial to start in February. Nothing of significance really happened for the next few months. Then, in November 2011, George's defence team were given access to Yardley's medical records, some 11 months after their initial request for access to these records were denied. On February the 6th, 2012, the trial began. A doctor testified that Yardley's blood alcohol content at the time of her death was 0.14 and that she had traces of amphetamines in her system. He probably didn't need to, but he did explicitly say that neither the alcohol or the amphetamine content in her blood was enough to kill her and was definitively not the cause of her death. God, it just still annoys me that that can even be brought into the case. Like, I can already see the uh, George's defence team bringing this up and actually it's just irrelevant what was in her blood at the time she was murdered. Yeah, I absolutely agree. She's not the suspect here. It, like you know she is the victim in this case something absolutely tragic and horrible happened to her why does it matter if she was drinking beforehand exactly so on the stand the medical examiner went on to discuss Yardley's injuries for hours although under cross-examination he had to admit that he could not say how these injuries were caused so this was kind of the injuries we were talking about earlier the injuries to her, her eyes and the injuries to her brain um, the defence actually pushed more on this and they stated that Yardley had no skull fractures and no damage to her torso or her shoulders. And the neuropathologist who received the wrath of these defence attorneys was forced to also admit that she could not say what caused the blunt force trauma that caused Yardley's death. It was also revealed at the trial that during the search of George's home, a top was found with bloodstains on it. But this blood, when tested, was not a match for either Yardley or George's blood. I don't really know what kind of relevance that has and why they brought it in. Um, because if it's someone else's blood, surely that just proves that he was beating up someone else. Do you know what I mean? Like that he was being violent towards someone else if someone else's blood is on his clothes. Yeah, I completely agree. But I suppose ultimately he's not on trial for that. So whilst it might serve as a bit of like a character defamation, actually it possibly also from like a jury perspective the first thing that will spring to their mind is, oh, it wasn't Yardley's blood, like, 
Do you know what I mean? I think it'll probably just play to like human psychology mm. and that will make them think, oh, that's not what we expected. So therefore maybe it's less likely this was all him. Even though, yeah, I agree. It's really, to me, just makes him sound a more violent person. But I can kind of see he can't be tried for another crime while he's on trial for this one. Yeah, 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 that's a really good point. Yeah, I guess that is true that the jury kind of just hear, um, they're obviously going to be overloaded with information by this point. So yeah, just saying that it's not Yardley's, um, I guess they're more likely to think that, well, this might not have been George. Yeah, totally agree. Totally get where you're coming from. So also during the trial, the defence argued that George was far too drunk on the night of the attack and that he wasn't sober enough to have plotted or planned to murder Yardley. Sorry, but who's saying this was a premeditated murder? Like, I don't think... There's plenty of drunk fights that happen in the world. You don't have to plan or plot anything to break into someone's house and drunkenly beat them up. Do you know what I mean? I just what a ridiculous argument. Yes, but then you have to remember that he's on trial for first degree murder. So for first degree murder, you do need intent. Um, so I think that is kind of what they're trying to tear down there. But how much intent do you need? Like, is it not, I can intend to kill someone in the spur of the moment, or do you need like a week of premeditation for it to count as first degree murder. So I can't say what it is for Virginia, but I mean for the UK, yeah, intent doesn't mean premeditation at all. And I can't imagine anywhere, um, well, anywhere in the kind of the Western world where it, where it would mean premeditation because it's, you know, things like that are so hard to prove unless someone's bloody written it in their diary and planned it out and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I totally agree with you. I don't think it matters. I don't think that you can be far too drunk to not be able to plot or plan it. I, I think it's a ridiculous argument from them. Um, I don't think that being too drunk negates any kind of intent or can take away from that. Um, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why they're making that argument, but I think they've got very, very little to go with at this point. Yeah, it does sound like it because it's not like we're talking about a criminal mastermind here. This wasn't a particularly sophisticated mm. murder. And I'm not saying that to try and glamorise other murders, but actually there wasn't mm. a particular amount of planning that went into this. It was a uh, impassioned, angry, very physical attack, wasn't it? It wasn't much more to it. Yeah, completely. And I think also we have to remember that this is a guy who has, you know, before in the past, he has got drunk, he's attacked people, and then he's got away with it by just saying that he couldn't remember. He did it to his lacrosse teammate. He did it to Yardley when he was when he was um, put her in a chokehold. He got away with both those instances by just saying that he was too drunk to remember what happened. And so, yeah, I mean, why do we expect any more from him that he's going to come up with a sophisticated argument now for why he did what he did? Um, I guess, yeah, he's just sticking to what he knows. And the, what he knows is that he can get away with things by just saying that he got too drunk. Totally agree. But yeah, anyway, this was rebutted by the prosecution um, when they presented evidence of his past pattern of violent behaviour, as we just discussed, and also the fact that he had physically attacked Yardley before. Um, and also because he'd sent that email to her in which he said, I should have killed you. So that was presented to the court. And of course, that's incredibly damning evidence against him, um, especially because he sent that email just a couple of weeks before Yardley's death. Yeah, the thing is, though, almost, I bet that email was just an off-the-cuff, angry threat. I mean, it's very useful for the prosecution that he did send it, but do you know what I mean? I think that'll probably be almost his greatest regret will be that email. Yeah, I think that is probably true. But in the email, he's referencing the um, the time that she supposedly threw her purse at him when she went round his house, and that happened three days before. So I think... You know, it's not 
they could quite easily probably argue that it wasn't a spur in the moment. Oh, I was really angry, so I emailed her saying that I should have killed her. It was like three days later, he's still stewing on it. He's still fuming about it. And then he emails her to say, well, when you came around three days ago, like I should have killed you. So I think actually um, they could probably argue quite a lot to do that email. But yeah, I definitely agree. I think that he probably massively regrets ever sending that. So after about two weeks, the trial came to an end and the jury started their deliberation. After just nine hours, the jurors found George Wesley Hughley V guilty of second-degree murder. So, of course, as we've discussed, second-degree murder is a slightly lesser charge than the original charge of first-degree murder, um, but it was a murder conviction nonetheless. He was also found guilty of the grand larceny charge, but the other charges that we kind of mentioned earlier, he was found not guilty of. The juror's recommended sentence was 25 years, and at his sentencing hearing, he was sentenced to 23 years in prison for the second-degree homicide charge. Um, I can't really find what sentence he received for the grand larceny charge, but, I mean, I guess it doesn't matter because um, in America you can serve sentences so they run concurrently, so I imagine that it's probably just being served alongside his homicide sentence. Um, but the 23 years that he was sentenced to were without the chance of parole. So that's then he'll definitively spend 23 years in prison and there's no way it can be any less. Yeah, unless some appeal happens, his conviction gets overturned or his sentence gets vacated or something like that. But yeah, there, there's no parole board to hear his case to see if he can get released early on good behaviour. It's 23 years. I think he'll be about 42 years old when he gets out. Do you know what? I'm actually really surprised. I'm really pleased at that sentencing because I'm sure some of it is just sensationalisation in the UK press. But I do think there seems to be a bit of a theme of male college um, undergraduates uh, who get away with these things and not get away in the sense of they get off completely scot-free, but they seem to get really lesser sentences, particularly where sports involved or family money, etc. So I was really worried when we were hearing this case that this was going to be another one of those. And I thought you might say something like, Joey recommends 25 years, he got 15 or something. So the fact that he got almost their full recommendation Actually, I think um, does nothing, I'm sure, for Yardley's family, but it seems to me like a real hallmark of some sensible and fair and just sentencing and like judicial proceedings in the States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. And the entire time I was researching this, that's what I was just actually so pleased with was the way that this entire case really was handled. Like it didn't matter that he had loads of money. It didn't matter that his dad was paying off whoever. I mean, obviously his court, um, his case records were sealed, but then they were unsealed. So I think, yeah, they took this case incredibly seriously. And yeah, like you said, it happens in the UK, but I mean, it happens in the US a lot as well, where like rich white male college students who are slightly athletic in some way, they do get very light sentences for this kind of thing. So yeah, I, I'm totally on board with you. I totally agree. And I don't know this for certain, but I think one of the slight differences, and I'm not saying the UK is any better at this, but I do think one of the differences is that college sport in America um, is a hugely like profitable and monetized thing in a way that it's not here. Mm. So if you were to put away someone who was of university age here, yes, of course, you'd ruin their future career, but no one else would particularly stand to lose from it in the same way that say a top flight American mm. college sports team I think probably would um in the states so I do think that might possibly have like a bit of a factor as to why you see differences I mean we have our own like huge issues etc but just thinking about it I think that's one of the things that comes into play so yeah again I'm just really pleased that I didn't hear 
Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. I think that is probably one of the big reasons. It's not obviously a justification at all, but I do think it's one of the reasons that that, that kind of thing does happen in America. So, yeah, um, I think we're probably all on the same page here that he received um, a very fair sentence for what he did. And um, also really glad that they found him guilty of secondary murder and they didn't kind of reduce it to the manslaughter charge, um, which, of course, they obviously could have done. So, um, yeah, I'm kind of glad that he was stuck with a murder conviction Um even if it wasn't the first degree murder conviction. Do we know much like since then, like anything from Yardley's family? Did they ever speak out about it or did they remain quite private throughout the case? Yeah, literally so much has happened since then. Um, so about a year after his conviction, George appealed his conviction on two grounds. His first ground was that he said that his right to counsel was violated and his second ground was in relation to the court's alleged failure to exclude a juror who the defence deemed should have been ruled out on the basis that he wasn't impartial. So the court heard both these arguments Um with relation to the first ground, this was to do with George's attorney falling ill during the trial um, with a stomach flu or something like that. And she had to take a day off court and the trial judge had refused to allow a stay in the trial while she recovered. And so because of this, George's co-counsel had to take over the proceedings. The defence argued that because of this, George had been denied his right to an attorney. And also with regards to the juror ground that he appealed on it was to do with a juror known only as juror 32 and they said that he um wasn't impartial and that he'd requested a dictionary to review the word malice which in this situation means intent um and is kind of the difference between murder and manslaughter really in this case um and they also raised concerns that the judge had not allowed the defense to pose quote blame the victim question to the jury before the jury selection process went ahead. I don't know what that means and I don't know. I tried to Google it. I don't know what blame the victim questions are, but I mean, it doesn't sound very nice, to be honest. I don't know why the defence wanted to pose those questions to the jury. Um, but either way, the Court of Appeal ruled against him on March 4th and they upheld his second degree murder conviction. Later that year, the defence attempted to take the appeal to the Virginia Supreme Court. However, the Supreme Court declined to hear the appeal. So with regards to Yardley's family, um, Sharon Love, who is Yardley's mother, bought two civil suits for the wrongful death of her daughter. The first suit was bought against George. It asked for $29.5 million and $1 million in punitive damages for her daughter's wrongful death. And she bought a second civil suit requesting, again, $29.5 million. And that was bought against the University of Virginia's men's lacrosse team head coach, the associate head coach, and the university's director of athletics. This suit alleged gross negligence on behalf of the university's coaching staff, saying that they knew and had covered up George's erratic and violent behaviour and his obsessive tendencies when it came to Yardley. Firstly, what? And secondly, $29.5 million, where do they get these numbers from um, in the courts? That seems a really random number to us, but I assume that given that it was bought in both civil cases, there's some logic behind it. But obviously we don't have um, suits like this here where you can just... um, claim money for anything other than that's actually demonstrable do you know what i mean like we don't have it here do we where you can just get no. 20 million for what you've been through no you can obviously get damages if you've been wronged and that kind of thing um but um you can also sue for negligence that kind of thing so i think essentially that is what they're trying to do i don't know what grounds they're bringing against george um but 
she basically knew from the start that she was going to bring this civil suit against George and that was kind of like raised in the trial or someone had spoken about it at the trial. The one against the University of Virginia's men's lacrosse team and like all their coaches and stuff, I can kind of understand where she's coming from. I could not find anywhere why this figure was $29.5 million in each case, but all I can imagine is they've added monetary values to very, it would be very different parts of Yardley's life. So it would be kind of like the pain and suffering of the family. And these are just examples that I'm giving off the top of my head. I really don't know if that's the case here, but it would be things like pain and suffering of the family, um, maybe like Yardley's potential future earnings, like maybe her potential future career, her potential future as a lacrosse player. It will be all of these things. It might even be for things such as, you know, the money on her that was spent on her education, that kind of thing, like all these things that they would see as being owed to them because Yardley's life was taken away from her and, and from them. Um, and they would have calculated it in a certain way to get to this $29.5 million figure. Um, but yeah, like I said, I don't know how they got there. Um, I can understand the negligence suit to some extent. I can't understand the figure. I can understand why they're, they're trying to sue the um, university. But in 2013, anyway, they dropped that suit against the university. I really, because actually, as you said, that would be the one that, as a parent, I think I'd want to pursue because actually I do think the university were negligent here. There was plenty of chances for someone to probably call George out on his behaviour, intervene. And I'm not saying that would have prevented what happened, but actually I do think universities and colleges, they have a right to um, mediate and control the culture that is very prevalent, particularly like amongst sports teams, but just generally on campus, mm. like they do have, they are the guardian of students really in term times. Mm. And I do think that, Yardley was let down by a lot of people on that campus so it surprises me that they dropped that I guess probably it was very costly for them but even if you got something it's sometimes in these cases just about people being found guilty and admitting they've done wrong which I think as a parent that's what I would want from the university I'd want an apology and I'd want the world to acknowledge that they'd let my daughter down yeah, without a doubt. I think they definitely were negligent. And I agree with you. It's, there's nothing to say that if they had reported it, something wouldn't have happened. But then, you know, at least even her like parents would have known. It's like someone would have known. Um, obviously, her, her friends did kind of know that George was violent, but at least her family would have known. And this wouldn't have been such a massive, massive shock to them um, that their poor daughter was kind of, you know, in this, what really was like a domestic abuse situation. Um so I imagine they dropped the suit because, yes, it was incredibly costly, but also it's draining, like things like this, bringing lawsuits is draining. It's draining on the mind. It's draining on everything. It's physically exhausting. And I think you're right. I think they probably just got to the point where all they wanted from them was apology. And maybe they got that, you know, in these situations, you have to go to mediation and things like that before you can take it to trial. So it's very likely that something, you know, was agreed behind closed doors and it gave them the peace that they they wanted yeah um and then in relation to the civil suit that they were bringing against george um despite this being scheduled to actually go to court in july of 2018 a month before that hearing they also dropped their civil suit against him although one report from the daily progress does state that sharon love then refiled the same suit against george in december of the same year so that's 2018 still i can't really conf confirm or really elaborate on that because i can't find any more information on it um, but I wonder if it was dropped originally to do with something with regards to his insurance, like, I read this very strange article, right, and I don't know how kind of, like, factual it is, but 
I basically said that George was due a very large payout from an insurance company, like millions of dollars from an insurance company. I don't know what for. What can he possibly have insured? I don't know. And that's what I really, really can't work out. It's like very, very bizarre. So um, if I can find any more information on it, I'll kind of, um, I'll link it and I'll, I'll put it in the description maybe and let you guys know. But I mean, it was a very, very brief article and that's why I couldn't find any more information on it. But it said that they dropped it um, because they weren't going to get a payout from that. Um, but then she rebought it, and it's something to do with the jury are less likely to award damages in a case where awarding damages are going to make the defendant bankrupt. No matter who the defendant is, the jury really doesn't want to kind of like bankrupt individuals, not like despite what they've done. So I think it's to do with that. So he wasn't going to get this payout. Um, and then after this, I believe, I believe after this, information came out about a trust fund that he has. Um, and that's maybe why she refiled it. But all of this is speculation on my behalf because the information is not really out there at all. So this is kind of just what I'm inferring from what I've read. I've got an idea. Well, it's not an idea, it's a question. Um, would you know if, because I know that sometimes you can settle these things out of court and then sign like a non-disclosure agreement. So whilst it may look on the surface like a case was dropped, actually they may have been offered a settlement of money on the condition that um, it was never like revealed that the George's attorneys say had settled. Do you know what I mean? Like I wonder whether that happened mm. here at all or do you think it genuinely was just dropped, finished, done? I think that's very likely to have happened in the case with the university. And that's kind of what I meant. Like maybe at mediation, something was like agreed to. Um, it could have been, yeah, it could have been anything as simple as an apology or it could have been a check. With George, I would only, the only thing I would say is if it is true that they refiled the suit at the end of the year, it could be that they dropped it because they they agreed to something and then that, you know, that never went through um, or maybe it wasn't signed or something like that. Um, or so it could have been that they discussed something in mediation, but it never, you know, legally went through. And so maybe they refiled the suit. But I mean, you know, I really, really don't know. I would imagine then, just kind of like thinking off the top of my head, I imagine then you would refile a suit for more money because you would want to claim the legal costs of the mediation and everything you just went through. But she refiled again for the 29 and a half million. Um, but I mean, I really, really don't know. I would agree with what you're saying if this um, about them refiling the suit isn't true. And I can't confirm or deny really if it's true or not. Okay. Uh, so in relation to this, Marta Murphy, who is George's mum, did comment on the lawsuit situation. And basically her view is that she thinks that now is time for the case to end and to be put to rest. She said that now was a time for healing and hopefully forgiveness and that this whole thing had gone on for far too long. She also did her first media interview in 2017 and spoke out for the first time on the case. In this interview, she said that she knows that what she feels is nothing compared to what the Love family are feeling, but that she is devastated. She says she only has sorrow for the Love family, and she says in this interview that she is, quote, so, so sorry that Yardley is gone. She does, however, say that she feels her son should have been convicted on a lesser charge, that lesser charge being manslaughter. She said that Yardley's death was a drunk accident. She said she waited for many years to speak out about this case, firstly out of respect for the Love family, but secondly because she believed in the criminal justice system, but she now feels that the criminal justice system doesn't always get it right. Uh, she also goes on to say that George has lost two grandparents whilst he's been incarcerated, and she hopes he can be out before his other grandparents pass away. Oh, heaven forbid. Poor George. <laughs> That's exactly how I felt. Um, so more recently, in April of this year, 2020, George started another petition to get his conviction vacated. 
his attorneys have stated um, that this is based on, quote, minor external injuries that Yardley suffered and that these injuries were consistent with Yardley falling off her bed onto the floor, landing face down on a wet pillow, which subsequently resulted in her smothering herself to death by accident. They have used her blood alcohol levels to back up this fanciful story, which is quite frankly offensive and weak. And I'm not really sure how they're planning to argue this considering her death was the result of blunt force trauma not as a result of smothering and there's no evidence to say that she was suffocated and i don't really know why they kind of reference a wet pillow in it there's nothing to suggest that there was any kind of wet pillow around i just think it's just awful like they just need to leave the poor family alone and suck it up it's infuriating it's so so infuriating like he just needs to get over it he needs to just grow up yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I appreciate that he's spending a long time in his life behind bars, but actually he did an awful thing to get there. He needs to get his head down, get his college education, which he can completely do from prison and absolutely mm-hmm. give Yardley's family some peace of mind and some rest. And if he is going to bring suits, then you know, I just think if you really, truly believe in your heart of hearts that a miscarriage of justice has been served here, then go away and find some bloody evidence to prove it. Don't waste Mm -hmm. the court's time, her family's time and heartache and emotions with just completely made up rubbish. Um, Yeah, that frankly won't stand up, will 100% get rejected. And all you're doing is just showing that actually you've not, you've still not accepted and taken ownership of what you've done. I think as long as you're bringing these pointless appeals that are just an insult to absolutely everyone else involved in this case, then to me that mm-hmm. just screams volumes that this is someone who still is the failing to take accountability for the things he's done. Absolutely. And that's what's really, really frustrating is that, yes, if this was an accident and in his in his interrogation video, you know, I, I do kind of believe that he really didn't know Yardley had died, but I don't think that's what, accident means you know not from a legal perspective but just from like a kind of like human perspective you don't accidentally beat someone to death exactly and I just think he might not have known she had died but he knew he beat her up and I don't care if he was drunk and I'm not saying he didn't wake up and think shit but actually it's not okay at any point that he went around there to Mm -hmm. to really hurt her I just think that isn't a bit less wrong than murder so actually it's absolutely fine that's still an awful Mm -hmm. thing and he had a track record of doing it and was someone who felt he was completely justified and going around and behaving like this to get in one drunk fight and wake up and regret it every day since and acknowledge your own strength and your volatility when you're drunk that's one thing but to be someone who serially goes out drinking and doing these things when you know actually a risk to other people particularly your girlfriend I just yeah I think regardless of whether he realised on that night that he'd killed her, he realised that he'd really hurt her and that's still a behaviour in a person that needs to do some real reflection and reformation. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And you know, like in the UK, for murder, you only need intent to, you know, you only need to have intent to cause GBH. So I don't know what it is in Virginia, but I mean, he, you know, he had bloody intent to to cause GBH without a doubt. So a year after the death of Yardley Love, her family started the One Love Foundation. This foundation works with young people across America to raise awareness of the signs of domestic abuse and more specifically, abuse in relationships. Their website has some really useful links for people, links that help with relationship advice in general, advice on how to spot signs of abuse, and it also has some helpful articles about how to take action against abusive partners and all that sort of thing. They also hold workshops and go around schools and other academic institutions to speak to students frankly and openly about relationships and how to spot the signs of an abusive partner and domestic abuse before it escalates. 
It's a really wonderful organisation set up to help a course that is obviously very dear to their hearts, but also to help other victims like Yardley. So, on that note, and not to sound all BBC News about this, um, but if you have been affected by anything you've heard in today's case, then please know that you're not alone. There are a lot of support groups out there who can help if you are suffering or think you might be suffering from domestic abuse. There is a website called reachout.com, and within that website, if you search for domestic abuse, then a helpful article comes up and lays out the signs of an abusive relationship. This is linked in the episode's description, and you can, of course, also use the One Love Foundation website, which has lots of helpful information on it as well. Um, I think that this is probably an important thing to say, so I am just going to say it. Um, But if you're in an emergency situation and you need to call the police from the UK, but you can't speak to the responder, then dial 999. Um, And if you don't speak, they will ask you which service you require. Um, They ask if you need an ambulance or police or whatever. Um, If you stay silent, you will be transferred through to the police. If you still cannot speak or alert the responder that you're in danger, then you can press 5-5 on your keypad and this lets the police know that you are in an emergency situation and that your call is genuine and not an accident. Unfortunately, claims that dialing 5-5 sends your location to the police is false, uh, but the police may be able to track your location from your mobile. However, it's not guaranteed, so if you can whisper your location, um, then please make sure that you do do that. Um, and if you're in a similar situation in the US, you can call 911 and then press 1 for the police. And usually you should then be able to answer the operator's questions by dialing 4 for yes and 5 for no. But please be aware that I cannot guarantee that this is correct for every state in the US. And I obviously cannot find or give out information for every other country. So please, please do look it up in your area so you know um, this information just in case. And yeah, I kind of didn't want to end this on a very low note like that. But I think that, you know, these are all important points to make. Um, Even if it does help just one person, then it's definitely worth saying. And the other thing which I think is really important is um, calling your friends out on it. They can be male, they can be female. Everyone can be the abusive partner in a relationship. And Mm -hmm. I think if you see the early signs of unhealthy habits starting into a relationship, I think it's really important that you do call your mates out on it or your siblings or your children, etc., Um, I just think, yeah, it takes everyone to do a bit to stop something which is horrifically common in all parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's so important. That's really important. Okay, right. Thank you everyone so much for listening to today's case. Um, As always, you can follow us on our social medias on Facebook or Instagram. um, And we will see you next Wednesday for another true crime case. So thank you so much, guys, for listening. And we will see you then. Have a good week. Bye. Bye.